Well, good morning, and and welcome to our uh, adult institute under quarantine podcast. Uh, thanks for for joining us, and again, keep in mind everybody around us who is also listening in, who are our friends and fellow classmates, and we're gonna we're gonna do this together. I record this uh, deep in the bowels of my office uh, with Cindy making sure that I don't uh, go off completely on the rails and give me dirty looks. Um, Hopefully everybody's doing okay. Um, If you're listening to this later, we were doing this during the the great quarantine of 2020, uh, trying to survive. This week is especially uh, interesting, so we're actually going to halfway take a bit of a break uh, from exactly what we've been doing to acknowledge a very special event, and that is uh, a week from uh, today, this is uh, February, or March 29th, a week from today we're going to be celebrating uh, 200 years uh, since Joseph uh, walked out of the grove uh, with new information and the beginning of the the restoration, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but as we do so, I wanted to I wanted to begin uh, kind of with with the uh, with the topic that we've been working on. We've been studying during this uh, semester the. The travels and study in the life of uh, Paul the Apostle, and it struck me that while we're getting ready to recognize Joseph Smith's first vision, we also have another first vision that that has a lot of interesting similarities to it, and that is Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. So let's talk. Let's remind ourselves first about uh, Paul's experience, and then we will talk about how that ties in uh, generally to to what happened with Joseph um, in his experience, and how these two great prophets are linked by a number of very cool similarities uh, that give us some idea again that God works in patterns. And the way that he does it, and you see sometimes the difference in the pattern, but you see how God calls prophets and how he instructs them and how he moves them forward, that his work can continue forward. Uh, so in order to get to, to Joseph and his first vision, let's start, let's start with the Apostle Paul and his conversion. When we go into uh, the book of Acts, what we find is that there are three uh, different versions of Paul's road to Damascus first vision. Uh, We're going to talk about the fact that Joseph Smith recorded four visions, or vision versions, if you will, uh, and five secondary. Uh, But Paul, at the very least, has three of his own that that the writers of Acts were able to recover, were able to record, and they have differences, as does Joseph's 
different experiences and they have different emphasis uh, and you when you pull them together and we'll talk about in a moment maybe why it is that there were differences uh, but but specifically when we're looking at Paul uh, if you've got your uh, your New Testament handy I want you to jump ahead to a place that we have not yet been uh, in our own discussion <clears throat> but we're going to look a little bit of ahead and this is uh, in Acts 26 if you look at Acts 26 and go to about uh, verse 12 we we have this the, at this moment again that we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks where Paul is in in prison but it's it's more like a house arrest and it's in uh uh, Caesarea Maritima, which is right on the coast uh, of Israel, above uh, what is now Tel Aviv and Joppa, uh, where he was. It was where the uh, Roman procurator Festus was there, and that from time to time, Herod Agrippa, or as he liked to refer to himself as King Agrippa. Uh, would would uh, would show up from time to time, um, and and Paul is being interviewed by by the, uh, the two of these, um, and as he gets ready to to do that, um, he actually records for them his experience and how he came to be doing what it is that he's doing. Um, and he says in verse 12 uh, while he was busy disrupting the church uh, I was doing this I was traveling to Damascus with authority um, and complete had complete power, power from the chief priests and he says uh, and, and see if this doesn't sound familiar in the middle of the day King Agrippa uh, I saw on the road a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Uh, we might even say brighter than noonday, uh, which ought to just ring some bells for us. Uh, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me, and, and those who traveled with me also saw the light. You might think about Alma, and there's, a, there's another parallel here uh, that we could get into. Um, and when they had, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me. And then he says specifically, remember, he's speaking to uh, not just Festus, but he's also speaking to uh, Herod, uh, who was uh, Jewish uh, and and knew knew his uh, Jewish roots here. Uh, I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic. That's fascinating. Uh, Greeks, uh, Greek would have been Paul's uh, uh, native language. Uh, he's learned Aramaic as he's come to Jerusalem and spent time and living in Jerusalem and that. But Greek, uh, for so many in this, this time period, they would have had their native language. For Paul, it's Greek but he also would have known Aramaic. This being that comes to speak to him speaks in Aramaic. This being's original language, mortal language. 
uh, which would have paid particular attention for Herod as well, that this was a Jew that was in the vision. And he says, Saul, Saul, uh, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against those that are prodding you. Um, is is how that terms think about it, like a cattle prod um, why are, are you persecuting me it's hard for you to kick against those that would prod you and of course Paul's response is who are you Lord I am Jesus Christ whom you're persecuting arise and stand on your feet I have appeared to you to appoint you now think about as, as we're saying this think about in essence this could be said about Joseph in that grove and may have been said to Joseph just in a way that we don't have recorded Um, so you think about Joseph at the same time as these things are being said to Paul because it could be said about uh, Joseph Smith as well arise and stand on your feet I have appeared to you in order to appoint you as a servant and a witness of the things which you have seen and of those things which uh, about which I will appear to you. So he's saying there is this experience, but there will also be future experiences. And I have appointed you to be a, a servant and a witness of the things that you're going to see and hear. Uh, and then to Paul, he says, I will deliver you from your people. <laughs> I will have to rescue you from your own people from the Jews but I will also deliver you from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes Um, now fascinating that we know that Paul is going to ultimately have his eyes closed for three days Um, but I am sending you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light there's the theme a light is appearing to him and in a sense his darkness is being turned into light and now he's saying I'm going to send you especially out to the Gentiles and your job will be to turn them from spiritual darkness as pagans to light as as Christians Uh, now what will happen when they go from darkness to light Uh, What he says is, the result of that will be to receive a forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Keep in mind this idea um, that in a sense he's telling Paul, just as I'm going to turn you from darkness to light, I will turn them from darkness into light. And those who've been turned from darkness into light, like you, Paul, are going to receive a forgiveness of sins. Now, given what Paul has been doing, and given what he went to Damascus in the first place to do for God to say to him, I'm going to give you a forgiveness of sins is powerful and amazing because Paul's um, activities have caused a tremendous amount of pain and sometimes death on the part of 
those that have been professing Christ, I will give you a forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In some cases, he's saying those who have died as a result of your actions, you will be forgiven of forgiveness of sins and you will have an inheritance with those you persecuted. Well, wow, that is a lot. Uh, enough that I think Paul's mind could only comprehend so much and the Lord gives him a sign um, and immediately then shuts down his light, shuts down his eyes. Uh, and one of the last things he will hear then, according to this account, is uh, what Paul is saying to King Agrippa. Uh, so Agrippa, to this day I have had help from God, so I stand here before you witnessing uh, to both small and great, saying nothing except what the prophets and Moses uh, said would be, what the scriptures have proclaimed. And what was that? That Christ would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and to do what? To declare the light to our people. So even our people, Agrippa, even our people are in darkness, even though they are the covenant people and even though they have the promises of Abraham. Um, I am here to declare light to our people. Now, as a side note, we get this response, right? Festus, this Roman procurator who hasn't been in town very long, his predecessor Felix just kind of fiddled and couldn't figure out what to do with him, didn't want to offend anybody. Festus comes into town and says, I'm going to solve this. Let's get this done. Let's take this guy that's been wandering around here for the last couple of years uh, and figure out what we're going to do with him. And Festus' response to all of this uh, is almost the same as uh, Gallio back in uh, Corinth. Paul, you are mad. Your considerable learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul says, I'm not mad, Festus. I relate these words. Um, but then he turns to Agrippa, and he says, uh, For I am convinced that none of these things are hidden from King Agrippa. For this thing was not done in a corner. Do you believe these? Do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? I know you believe. And then, uh, despite what the King James Version has sort of said, I think this says it more clearly what's being said. Agrippa says to Paul, Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian in so short a time? And Paul replied, uh, I pray to God, whether it be short or long, that not only you, but those who listen to me might become even as I am. And then a little joke from Paul. Uh, we tend to think of Paul the serious and everything. A little joke by Paul this is, is, is wonderful. He says, uh, I want you to listen. Doesn't take whether it's long or short. Uh, but I want to convert those who listen to me that they might become even as I am, um, except for the chains. Uh, the chains were bad. <laughs> so be like me, except for being in chains. 
which I think is is really kind of a kind of a bit of a joke. Um, and but Paul felt that immediate need then to be able to take the experience that he had to declare light to those that were in darkness, based on what he had just heard in vision. Well, that's that's Paul's experience. Now, on on this on this two hundredth anniversary, I want to I want to lay a question out here as we begin to see how Joseph Smith's experience uh, ha, has some similarity with Paul's. But I want to point I want to pin a question in the back of your mind before we do this, and that's this, and that is what exactly. Beginning in 1820, did the prophet Joseph Smith restore? What did he believe he was restoring? What was being restored to the earth? And you'd and in order to do that, you'd have, actually have to ask the question: What was actually taken away? Because Christianity, in some form, kept going after the great apostasy but what was lost and what did Joseph Smith think he was restoring especially in those very early days because uh, it's easy for us brothers and sisters to say very quickly uh, well uh, priesthood authority was restored uh, the keys were restored well yes Priesthood authority began to be restored in 1820, nine years later. Keys were brought back to the Kirtland Temple. That's 16 years later, in the future. But if the restoration sort of started to begin that morning in the grove, what was Joseph Smith actually restoring, especially in the very early moments and the very early days and weeks after his experience and that's that's the thing I'd like to touch on uh, a little bit today if we can um, now let's let's uh, let's begin then by by setting the stage just a little bit um, one the the idea of the first vision, is one that, for those that struggle with the church, has had its own little set of uh, controversy. Um, and those that have left the church cite the first vision as a problem. Why? Because they will say, Joseph gave four official accounts, 1832, 1835, 1838, and then 1842. Four accounts. And then there's five smaller mentions in other places, but four major accounts. And there are differences. There are differences in these accounts. Well, that has to discount. Uh, we, we think he was just making it up as he went. Um probably it wasn't that long ago that we had the the privilege here in in uh, Texas of being able to have a fireside uh here in uh, McKinney 
up in McKinney uh, with uh, Brother Stephen Harper, who at this moment is probably the church's foremost authority on the first vision. He helped author uh, ed be an editor for Saints. Uh, you'll see him if you look at any of the first vision videos and podcasts. Uh, the Joseph Smith Papers Project, Stephen Harper, is fairly prominent, especially in this very early stage. And there's probably nobody on earth that knows more about the events and circumstances about the first vision than does Stephen Harper. He has a new book out uh, that, that actually talks about um, the first vision but he has to he has to be able to couch it in the in the idea of memory and how memory works uh, and after hearing his discussion, I went up to him afterwards and and had to say to him, uh, brother harper i've been in my own experience i have been I've been working with memory and issues around trauma for 40 years and you're exactly right in the way that he's couched uh, Joseph Smith's memory of what happened that morning. Um, so let, let's take just a second and remind ourselves, we've talked about this in some other classes, but I want to remind uh, us again, uh, it might be new information for someone who wasn't able to sit in in, in our class. Let's just remind ourselves very quickly, uh, I don't want to get sidetracked, but very quickly about what we know about uh, memory. Um, when I was in graduate school, uh, we were taught very early on that uh, the brain recorded absolutely everything in perfect digital form in our brain. Part of what would happen, the understanding about hypnosis is that under hypnosis you could take somebody back to their those memories in our brain and that the brain had it all recorded uh, in pixel-like clarity. You just had to use hypnosis to, to uh, uncover that and then you'd be able to see exactly what happened like you were watching uh, a movie every time exactly right. What we have come, the considerable knowledge that we have gained um, since the 1980s says that that was exactly wrong. Um, in, in actuality, what happens now, uh, and Brother Harper's book also does a good, maybe more eloquent way of describing this. We remember the past events of our lives uh, through what I call uh, Lego memory. And that is that if I asked you at this moment to try and remember your first day in school as a, as a young kindergartner or, or the day that you graduated from high school uh, or uh, the day you get married or whatever, that your brain would have to go to different parts of the brain to, re to uh, pull back together and reconstruct what happened in that particular moment and, and bring it back together. Well, here's the, 
here's the gigantic problem with that. And so let me just suggest this to you. If I sat you and your siblings down, those that you grew up with, and said, let's talk about what remember what happened on a certain Christmas morning or a certain family vacation, and I got you talking, would you all remember the exact same event the exact same way? Or would you get into a bit of a disagreement about the fact that that one would say, well, that's not exactly what happened. No, I remember this. No, that didn't happen. We did that. No. And, and so even when you have a group of people that sat in on the exact same event, they remember the same event differently. Why? Because it got recorded in their brains from a different perspective, through a different lens, and, and they begin to put that uh, together. Uh, and then make that even more. The younger your memory, the younger you were when the memory occurred, makes it even worse. The farther back it goes, the younger we were, these are all things that uh, impact our ability to remember what happens. So if I'm asking you to remember a specific event, that memory can be impacted by... Uh, your age that it happened, your history of similar kinds of things since then, it's even affected by who you're telling the story to. If you, if you tell the same story of your high school graduation and you're doing it with uh, kids or grandkids, you would tell that story differently probably than the one you would tell maybe as part of a uh, fast and testimony meeting uh, discussion. We emphasize certain aspects, we leave certain things out, uh, or our life experiences since then make us frame that whole experience completely differently depending on what's going on in our life. Um, and then obviously our audience uh, that we're telling it to will change it again, how we're actually seeing that. So um, I'm working on a book on memory and, and uh, part of what I'm almost trying to say in this, this book is be careful, don't trust your memory that much. Um, the way you perceive, perceive it is the way you perceive it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's exactly what happened. So you have to be uh, at least a little bit um, suspicious of uh, those kind of experiences. Uh, now, uh, so, so one last thing. I, um, I have had the experience, as had Brother Harper, of knowing people that told stories about their growing up for years and told it to everybody and maybe they were able to do it in speaking experiences and everybody would laugh and then having family members come up later and say um, funny story but that never happened to you it happened to me or it happened to your sister or it happened to your brother and they remembered the event they just didn't remember important details like who it happened to 
Um, so, so we have to be, when, when, when we start talking about memory experiences, um, we have to be very, very careful. Now, let's then relate this to Joseph Smith. There's a couple things that I think we have to keep in mind um, as he's telling the stories or writing the stories or recording the stories of the first vision. First of all, make no mistake about this. If you're going to take a, a backwoods young teenager, you're going to put him in the woods, and he's going to have a road of Damascus, Alma-like, light descend from heaven that he thought was going to burn the trees and you're going to couple that with some kind of uh, dark pushback against all of that <laughs> make no mistake for for joseph smith however he felt after during that experience that was a traumatic experience that for a human mind to be able to absorb the power and light and knowledge and information that is landing on this kid and do it in a short period of time that is brain on overload he absorbed so much that probably little bits of it would come back to him later but i don't think that any of us could have gone through that experience walk out of the grove and 10 minutes later give a blow by blow uh, account for, because for one thing we have no idea how long the vision lasted if we read this if we read this simply the way that he wrote it we're done in 30 seconds and he could have been there for hours we we just don't know and he didn't say um, uh, let me give you a, a bit of an example, uh, a very minor, almost trivial example. But uh, in the uh, couple of times that we have taken people uh, through the Vatican Museum, uh, if you've ever been to the Vatican Museum, it's an incredible experience. And what you're seeing is uh, a room full of gold, objects that have been gathered since the early days of the church and they are magnificent and they're amazing and then you go to another room and you see another room full of gold objects an incredible tapestry and that's amazing and then you go to another room and you see another room full of gold uh, and massive objects and paintings and sculptures and then you go to another room and you see another one after that. And you just keep doing that for an hour. Well, over and over and over there is all of that. And at some point you look into a room full of gold and your brain is numb. It can't absorb any more amazedness. It can't. It's just, it's just not set up for that kind of amazing kind of thing. And then when you recover from that, then they run you through the Sistine Chapel and it's like, wow, here's the Sistine Chapel. And you're looking at all of that and trying to capture all of uh, Da Vinci's stuff that's all around you. And, and then you get, well, 
Then when you recover from that, then they run you through St. Peter's Basilica. And oh my gosh, there's the there's the uh, Piatta and and everything. And so at some point you can only absorb so much, no matter how amazing it is. Well, think about Joseph. He's describing the Father. He's describing the Son. He's describing fire from heaven. He's describing angels. He's whatever visions he might have got at the time. He's just at some point this poor boy's brain just had to be uh, absorbing much. Um, now, no doubt later on in his life, I'm sure that the Holy Ghost had the ability to help activate some parts of what he remembered. But if you're going to talk about what he knew at the time, um, that's overload. No matter how you want to, no matter how you want to do it. Now, let me mention one other aspect to this. Then, um, just because of the pure nature of memory, we have no idea how much Joseph would have retained at the time, how much went by him. And, and how much Joseph actually remembered and just chose not to say. Could have very easily have remembered certain aspects, but was either told not to express it, not to say it, uh, chose not to say it uh, until later on, and some things he may have experienced that he never told anybody on this earth. There's just an awful lot that goes into um, trying to somehow criticize the differences or the aspect or ch between these different versions is uh, if you understand how memory works, you begin to see how easily that would that could happen. I guess even in some of your experiences early on, you've probably told the same story differently for a lot of different reasons. Okay. But uh, I want to focus uh, in the time that we have remaining. I would really like to focus on a certain aspect of this. Uh, so with, with all of the wonderfulness uh, of the other versions, um, a couple of things. And as we as we hear more the, this next weekend in general conference, um, how much of this they'll they'll choose to emphasize, I don't know. But um, one of the things that Joseph was clearly soaked in uh, and would have been really exposed to, he said that he leaned towards Methodism. Uh, Methodists of that time and era were more almost the way that we see more of a kind of a Pentecostal faith tradition today. They tended to be more about uh, extraordinary experiences um, and more about uh, these personal experiences that brought them to the faith. Uh, they're more likely to have talked about seeing signs or lights or visions or or something along that line. But it was always taking it to the same conclusion, and that was, as a result of all of this, I had my sins forgiven. The, the best parallel, brothers and sisters, we have on this is our own, is our own fast and testimony meetings. We have our much lighter 
but still similar experience of saying, how did I come to know the church was true? Well, I was praying on this and praying on this, and then and then I knew, or I, I read, or I felt the Spirit, or when that person talked, or I heard a song, or something, suddenly we knew. Something extraordinary had happened in our heart that took us from what we thought we knew to what we needed to do. Um, and we have these experiences. Um, and we and then we'll get up on open mic Sunday and we'll talk about them. This is my this is when I know the Book of Mormon was true. Well, in Methodism at the time they had the same kind of thing, only just a little bit more tended to be a little bit more dramatic. Uh, saw light in the heaven. Uh, there were talk those that talked about I saw God uh, or that I heard a voice or something like that. Uh, over time we know that Methodists. Um, didn't like how they were being perceived by the other Christian sects. Uh, and so they tended to try and downplay kind of the little bit more uh, uh, dramatic aspects of it. But at that time, it was that was pretty rife. Uh, but the re- end result was as they knew their sins were forgiven. Joseph's first account that he writes down in his own history in 1832, the emphasis that you walk, that you, that you get and that brief little thing as he's trying to write his history there in Kirtland is out of that experience he knew that his sins were now forgiven. That is a that is a Methodist experience. And they were also private experiences. They, were, they weren't meant, for the most part, you might mention it in, in a church setting maybe once, but beyond that, that was your private conversion experience that you held on to that lets you know that God loved you. Um, Joseph appears to have treated that first vision experience that he wrote down for years as his private, personal testimony experience. That's why he didn't tell anybody we don't even know how long it was before he told his parents about the first vision. Uh, could have been a long time. Uh, it was years after he knew David Whitmer, before David Whitmer ever knew that it had occurred. Everybody knew about Moroni and gold plates. The first vision was a sacred personal experience to Joseph. Um, now, but for our purposes, that when where I think this kind of lines up uh, very closely with Paul's experience. I want to hop to the 1838 uh, account, and I want to I want to quote uh, part of this. And this is the one that we have in the Pearl of Great Price. In this particular one, remember this is going to come. This comes after after Liberty Jail. He's writing this down. He may have started some of this in Liberty Jail, but this is after his. Uh, Liberty Jail experience and all the persecution and problems that have that have occurred, um, oftentimes at the hands of uh, local ministers. So the 1838 is account is much more combative. There's more of an emphasis on the persecution and the pushback, and it's influenced, I believe, and Stephen Harper believes comes as a result of what he, the the persecution he was marinating in at the time that he dictated this account. But here's a particular piece of this that, uh, that 
when, when we ask the question again, what did Joseph restore? And in the very earliest days, what did Joseph believe he was restoring? What was he bringing to the earth that was not there at the time? The key here, I think, is, is in this line, and for, quoting from 1838's, when he, he says, I came to myself, remember, and then he, he was going to ask which of all the churches was true. Well, that's different from his 1832, where he just wanted permission, forgiveness for sins. But now, for public consumption, this is going to be used as, as a missionary tool. He emphasizes another aspect of that vision experience. Which of all the churches were true? Here's the response. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the person who addressed me said, and and this I think is key, why were they wrong? The person who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in in his sight. And that those professors of those creeds were corrupt. As a result, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Quoting from Isaiah. Uh, As a result, they teach as doctrine the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but deny the power. Now, let's go back. Address that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight. We have to remind ourselves when we think about creeds, what was a creed? A creed was some was a written statement of what a particular uh, religion believed and what they taught. Uh, it's almost like our articles of faith were kind of a light Mormon creed, uh, if you will. Um, but they were much more in depth. Now, there's, there we are we are pretty well acquainted with the Nicene Creed, which was going to basically at its heart uh, talk about the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one, uh, and that that came out of that Council of Nicaea uh, under under Constantine. But that's not the one that that Joseph would refer to that he was more acquainted with and would use part of it in the temple endowment to talk about what uh, Satan and the ministers were going to be saying uh, and borrowed it for our endowment. Okay, um, The creed that I believe that, he, that uh, bothered him the most was actually one that that was formed uh, in in uh, 1636, 1646. Pardon me. Uh, at the time that the Church of England was really uh, coming into being and clarifying itself as being different from the Catholic Church, this was the creation of what's called the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is several long chapters of what it is that the Anglicans are to believe. And this, but, so this would affect 
uh, Presbyterians that uh, Joseph's mother was uh, a member of um, and and was predominantly so Episcopal uh, Church of England Presbyterian uh, a lot of churches still uh, have as their foundation stone the Westminster Confession of 1646 and it's been modified a number of times but but there are some things in here that I, I just want to quote a little bit from this one because I because if you'll take a look at this I think this is really the part of uh, when when the Lord is telling Joseph in the first vision that the uh, these creeds were an abomination well let's see what was so abominable about the creeds. Uh, number one, uh, and I, I'm just gonna, I've, I've just gone through and, and picked a few of these, so these, these aren't in exact order, but um, it said that the Holy Scriptures, uh, and I quote, are said to possess infallible truth and contain all things necessary for God's glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, so that no new revelations or human traditions can be added to it. See, they were pushing back against the Catholics who said, yeah, sometimes church tradition is a revelation as well, and a, and a Catholic bull can be seen as, this is new scripture. Uh, and they said, nope, nope. If it's in the scriptures, this is sola scriptura. Your own, you can solely go to the scriptures, uh, and it can. And so, our Bible, as constituted, the King James Version, contains all things necessary for God's glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. Um, now, because of that, that confession of faith said that the Bible was kept pure and authentic that the scriptures alone are the church's final authority in religious disputes um, and that the Holy Ghost speaking in the scriptures is the supreme judge of councils, ancient writers, doctrines, and private revelation. You're, you're not able to get private revelation only what you get through the scriptures. Now, that makes that, in a sense... That immediately rules out any other revelation, any other scripture, other than what was in the Bible. That's the essence of sola scriptura. Um, and and Joseph is being told this this fourteen year old boy uh, is being told that confession's wrong. Uh, we'll talk about in a second that the first vision proved that in spades. Okay, now. Here's, here, I think, is the big one. After describing the attributes of God that exists in chapter 2, the Westminster Confession endorses the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, which holds that only one God exists as three persons. Okay? And that's the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. But then it goes on to say that this God... Uh, then instituted the Reformed doctrine of predestination. 
and say, well, well, no, that's just foreordination. Well, listen, listen to how the Westminster Confession frames predestination. God foreordained who would be foreordained, who would be under the elect, meaning they're saved, while he passed by those who would be damned for their sins. Now, and the, so this is the quote. The confession, the Westminster Confession states that from eternity God did freely and under unchangeably ordain whosoever should be saved. So by, by God's decree, some men and angels are predestined, foreordained, unto everlasting life, and others would be foreordained, predestined, to everlasting death. God, by decree, it's saying, would, would designate some people for eternal life and would designate some people to everlasting death. In other words, he would create some, and, some men and women to be sent to hell no matter what they did. When the Lord is speaking about abominable <laughs> creeds, to Joseph Smith in that very first setting. He's talking about those things that would say, some members, some of my children will never, by predestination, ever have a chance to be saved, no matter what. That's abominable. The other, the other part that I that jumped out at me when I was looking at. And there's a lot more, but I really wanted to emphasize these couple. Um, this is another, and it's a quote: "The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does sometimes leave for a season His children to manifold temptations." and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for former sins. Um, let me say that in non-1646 King's English. God sometimes lets you suffer to continue to chastise you for, for long-ago sins. That's, that's basically what he's saying. He will withdraw from you as a punishment for sins in your past. So as the result is that, so that they will now be more watchful against all future occasions of sins. Uh, he really wants you to suffer a lot and to continue to suffer for your past if he can get you to continue to suffer for your past, then you're more likely to you're less likely to be sinning in the future. But it's about suffering. And it's about justice. 
and it's about an arbitrary God who is picking and choosing who he'll save and an arbitrary God who at times will continue to make you suffer for past sins. That's what's contained in the Westminster Confession. And that, I think when the Lord says that, uh, if we go back to that, all the creeds were an abomination in his sight, their professors were corrupt, and they teach as doctrine the commandments of men, having a form of godliness. It sounds good. But they deny the power thereof. Okay. So, in our time remaining, what power? Can I say this, then? That my belief is, what was it that was initially restored in that grove of trees? 200 years ago that with one sweeping single event Joseph Smith came to know several things and then he would know it again and again and again over the course of his lifetime what was restored what was restored was the true nature of God through the, uh, the Roman Church, through the Reformation, Christianity was kept alive. And for that, we're incredibly grateful. And we're grateful for the people that have tried to live better lives and tried to worship God uh, and become better people by studying the Scriptures, by attending church, um, and by worshiping the Savior of the world and recognizing the Savior as the source of the remission of sins. What was lost and needed to be restored by this 14-year-old boy, in addition, would be the true nature, the full power that had been denied, the full power of God. So, what was readily apparent as he walks through the woods, comes to the edge of the clearing, steps over the little creek, little brook that runs just to the east of that group of trees, as he's walking back towards the the farmhouse, the apple orchard there on his left that was not yet blooming, but the the maple trees around him that were being tapped for maple, and um, and he's but what's in his head in that setting was was actually against so much of what he had heard, and that was that ongoing revelation still occurs that God does speak to man not just for the remittance of their sins, but to refute so much of what things like the Nicene Creed and the Westminster Confession were trying to portray. 
It would have been a reminder to him, though, how much of this he would have misunderstood, where he was still seeing a lot of it as a private conversion experience. He calls the weak to confound the strong. We can look at the Apostle Paul and say this was one of those times when the Lord chose a powerful person to have to turn them to his to what he was doing and to and to call him to the work and it took but Paul was an extraordinary man and an extraordinary case it would have taken somebody with Paul's knowledge and understanding and experience and constitution and and connections to take the gospel to the gentiles in the midst of the Roman Empire. So from that standpoint, Paul from the was a very strong man, but but he talks frequently as we get into Second Corinthians, he talks about his weaknesses. He saw himself as weak. And he was very aware of his weaknesses and he called the Corinthians to look at his weaknesses. So even though he appears strong, he was also another weak one that had been called to confound the strong and stand before uh, Festus and stand before Agrippa and, and ultimately at one point would have probably stood before um, the leaders in Rome and, and pronounced to Caesar what it is that he believed. In revealing the true nature of God, though, let me remind us again that Joseph organizes the church in 1830. Just a few months later, after that experience, he will begin to revise the Bible. And one of the things that we will find in that Bible revision is uh, a full understanding of Enoch. And when we talk about Enoch uh, having this extraordinary experience that you see in in, in, in uh, Moses 7 where for a brief period of time Enoch begins to uh, feel what God feels and experience what God experiences and what they were experiencing was the vision of the flood that was to come and to watch the suffering of those the children and to watch heaven weep and in that moment Enoch becomes like God in the sense that he experienced the emotions of a God and it says that he wept and all eternity shook this weeping God is mild there's a massive chasm between that and the God of the of the creeds 
that saw God as removed. Uh, it's from the creeds that we get the term, this is a God without body, parts, or passions. He has no passions. He's so far removed from the ant-like children on earth that he has no compassion for them. And what, what Joseph experienced in translating Enoch's experience was the exact opposite. This was a God profoundly moved by the, by the pain of his children. Combine that with the long-suffering God of Jacob 5 and that allegory in the vineyard where he tries one thing and it doesn't work. In, in a sense, God sort of fails. And then he tries something else and that doesn't work. And then they try something else. And he keeps trying and he brings in servants and he tries until it finally works. That long-suffering God is not the God of the creeds. That God that would try one thing, have it not work, is not the God of the creeds. What Joseph was restoring and what we celebrate 200 years is that Joseph's God, our God, the God that we worship, the God that we pray to, the God that inspires President Nelson is a weeping, compassionate, merciful, long-suffering God. And I believe with all my heart that it is his intent this is my work and my glory to save all my children. Give me long enough with them. I will bang on their door <laughs> till you let me in. He comes out to us. That's the true nature of the God restored to Joseph Smith 200 years ago. The mistake we make sometimes when we start blaming ourselves too much, when we hold on to old guilt, when we are too judgmental, when we are unkind to ourselves, um, we live, we marinate in other Christianity views of God and they have some knowledge. But only through this God, the God of Joseph Smith and the God of this church, is one that understands the true nature and the true power, often denied in other places, the true power of a God to rescue his children and bring them home. And for that, as we celebrate the first vision, for that we need to be profoundly grateful that God has let us see who he is.
has pushed back against the precepts of men that would rob him of his true power to love us. As we, as we look at this singular moment in time, from seclusion, can we know that there is great power in understanding this God, the God of Joseph Smith? I pray that we can do that. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.